Let's read uh, Mark 5, 1 to 20 together. If you've got your Bibles with you, go for it. But the NRSV will be up on the screen here. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, even with a chain. For he had often been bound with fetters and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the fetters he broke in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and crying with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him eagerly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, Send us to the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them leave. And the unclean spirits came out, and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and the man who had, the leg- who had had the legion, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their neighborhood. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all men marveled. I'm a bit suspicious about whether that is the NRSV. It's a different NRSV to the one I've been reading. Anyway, does anyone know the word recividism? Yes. <coughs> Rosemary, nodding your head. Could you sit up, please, Rosemary? You look like you're falling asleep there. <laughs> jokes, jokes. You can sit back how you were. What does reci- recidivism mean? <laughs> They're not laughing at you. process of um, an offender continually returning to jail. Yes. The recidivism rate in Queensland is currently running around 77%. Thank you. Which is unsustainable. Unsustainable indeed. So the tendency of a convicted criminal to re-offend, recidivism, it's fairly new to my vocab, which is why I'm just saying it over and over. I'm trying to learn the word. Now, that percentage varies in different countries, as you could imagine, uh, in the, and, and also from state to state. Very high here in Queensland, 77%. Three in four people who get out of prison after serving a, a, a sentence of varying lengths ends up back in prison, and many of them within two years. As Of course, after five years, it's even higher. In Australia, um, a census was taken 2014 to 15 in that two-year period, of prisoners Australia-wide returned within two years. It seems like a lot. Half. 
you would think that there'd be this sort of attitude of fresh opportunity, new life on the other side of my prison sentence, and I will make everything new, and I will start again afresh, and things will be different. And yet that's not what happens. And in many of the cases, of course there are a number of reasons for this, rehabilitation being a big one, but one of them is simply the desire to return to what's familiar. The desire to return to what's familiar. It's part of our human nature, isn't it? The desire to return to what's familiar. Sometimes we feel safer, we feel more secure, even in dangerous places, because they're familiar places. I remember studying pastoral psychology back in the day when I was sitting where you guys are sitting. And I remember hearing a story about a woman who kept returning to her husband who was abusive when he was drunk. Whenever payday came around, he'd go to the pub and he'd come home inevitably drunk and he would be abusive. And she found it very hard to shut the doors on him and say, I won't permit this any longer. Now, on one level, as we sat and listened to a pastor talk about how he had worked this through, it didn't make a lot of sense that you would put yourself in that situation again and again. And he talked about his struggle to give her counsel. But it became very clear that it was her desire to stay in a situation <coughs> that felt familiar. And you might be thinking, come on, Paul, these situations sound pretty extreme for us. Prisoners and abusive relationships. But we're all like this. We're all like this, aren't we? All of us tend to stay in life situations that hurt us simply because they're familiar. We become familiar with them. They feel like home, but they're not the home that God has designed for us. Let me say a word of prayer and we'll continue. Loving Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, as you speak to us today, open our ears to hear your voice and work in our hearts to make us receptive to your Spirit's leading. Amen. Our passage today begins with an unusual phrase, doesn't it? They came, not that phrase. <laughs> Thanks, Nigel. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Sometimes we just flip over that and keep looking for the action. But it's an interesting phrase. They came to the other side of the sea. Jesus is in a foreign place. It's a place that he doesn't necessarily belong. As Mark puts it, he's on the other side. That phrase is used a few times in Mark, chapters 4, 5, and 6, as Jesus gets around healing people, delivering people. It's not a phrase that's used to refer to a a particular place, but just as Jesus travels either side of the sea, he goes to the other side, to the other side. And you'll notice if you look around Mark's, Mark 4, 5, and 6, this phrase being used. Now, as you know, there are many different ways to read the Bible. You're learning that, aren't you? Yes. Lots of nodding heads. Uh, for my PhD, the, the approach that I really focused on was called narrative criticism. And it's a critical method that focuses on you guessed it, reading narrative texts and paying very close to attention, attention to how literary details in the text can be read as signposts to theological realities. Does that make sense? 
Whether or not you've heard it described quite like that, I'm sure you're familiar with what I mean. So you pay close attention to what's happening and to the language that's used, and, and you're asking the question, how is the author signaling a greater theological reality? And we'll note that as we go through. And just looking at Jesus being on the other side is already a first step in that direction. So this place is familiar. It's home to the demon-possessed man. But to Jesus, he's gone to the other side. So this historical, this isn't just a historical narrative in the Gospels about Jesus healing and delivering someone. It is that. It is that. But it's more than that. The Gospels are recounted in such a way, as we've already seen, that they, they tie everything back to the Old Testament. Why? To show us that this is the climactic chapter of a much, much bigger story. Jesus comes as the new Israel. He comes to fulfill Israel's hopes and expectations. The whole idea of a Messiah and so on doesn't make much sense without the first four or five chapters of that story. And so we get the, the gospel writers referring back to Old Testament texts, and we'll see that today, sometimes subtly, sometimes with a great big, and this was said to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet so-and-so. But they're also written in a language that's theologically rich, and I want us to have a look at a bit of that today as well. For instance, before we get into this, this story in particular, what's the first miracle in the book of Mark? And I expect this is just popping into all of your heads. And you're all waiting for someone else to respond. So, no. But thank you for putting yourself out there. His first miracle in Mark 1, and I preached on Mark 1, but I didn't go anywhere near this, so you could be forgiven. It's the exorcism of an unclean spirit. Erin knew that. She just didn't say it when I asked the question. <laughs> but the first miracle in the book of Mark is the deliverance, the exorcism of an unclean spirit. And that is significant because that's the way that Mark has chosen to introduce Jesus. Now, often when we look at the Gospels, I don't know if this is the case for you, but for a long time uh, when I was studying the Bible, John was the theological gospel, right? Is that anyone else's thinking? You've got, the, you've got the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all doing a sort of similar thing, but then you've got John, right? <laughs> and John is the theological one. He, he changes the chronology of the synoptics, right? Everyone else has the, the water-to-wine miracle near the back, but he's got it as the first miracle in the book of John because that's significant. And he's got six signs all the way through leading up to the resurrection and... Um, He's got all those I am statements that Jesus makes and stuff that the other Gospels don't seem to major on. And I remember thinking, wow, this, this language, it's so different when you read John. You can see why you study the synoptics and then there's John and they seem to be separated. But for a long time now, scholars have increasingly seen that, no, that's not just John. It's Matthew, Mark and Luke. They're all very theological in their language. They've all thought long and hard about how they structure their Gospels, and they're all doing a lot more than meets the eye on first look. And I talked about that at the beginning of this sermon series. So Jesus' first miracle in Mark is casting out an unclean spirit. And that's important because 
That's who Jesus is. This whole gospel is going to be clean versus unclean. The Messiah set up over and against the forces of chaos and evil. And we're going to see Jesus, the victor, in all of these encounters again and again and again. That's how Mark will present him. Clean versus unclean. And actually, the narrative just before that demonstrates this this victory that we're talking about. And this will become significant as we go on. But in chapter 4, just prior to this, on his way over to the other side, do you remember what happened? Jesus speaks a powerful word against a storm. This huge storm rises up and Jesus speaks a word against it, be calm, and his word prevails over the chaotic waters, over this storm. The storm is stilled and the disciples ask, who is this guy? Who is this guy in the boat with us? Speaking to storms and stilling them like this. And so Jesus arrives on this scene and we read a description of a man rushing out to meet and greet. (laughs) In verse 3, look at that description. I mean, uh, or verse 2 I think it is here. I probably don't even need to talk about the theological language here. When he'd come out of the boat, they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, even with a chain. These literary details have theological weight. Verse 4 suggests to us that no one has the strength to help this guy. He's beyond help. No one has the psychological answers that he needs for his condition. No one has the ability to control this guy, to cast these demons out. And he's living in a place that's normally reserved for death. He's living among the tombs. So step back. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Our own sins, the things that we do, that are acts of rebellion against God, are also forms of self-harm. This guy's been bound with fetters and chains, but the chains are wrenched apart. The fetters he broke in pieces. No one has the strength to subdue him. Verse 5 says, Night and day among the tombs in this place of death and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. Again, look beyond the literary to the theological. Here is someone who is crying out for help, stuck in a place of death, and self-harming. I want to take a minute on this, and it's not to make us feel ashamed or guilty about various things in our own lives, but because sin, or inner demons as we sometimes call them, are subtle. We sometimes, we, we think, of a demon and we might think of a film or or some portrayal in a painting and we think that demons are in your face, loud, obvious. But not necessarily. Let me ask you a few questions. I wonder what your inner demons are. You may have something that comes immediately to mind and you don't need me to say anything. But what about anger? Are you someone who projects an aura of having it all together? but you erupt emotionally when you can't control 
your environment. What about pride? We think pride is obvious, but pride is so subtle. Are you a generous person, sympathetic, a bit of a social butterfly, and just so helpful to everyone around you? In other words, you're a lovely person, as long as others see that you're a lovely person. But if someone ignores your charm and your wit, do you turn cold on them, just like that? If so, pride could be your inner demon. Are you deceitful? I didn't expect any hands to go up there. You're not about to say, yes, Paul, I'm deceitful. You see what I did there? Good. But do you love the limelight? Do you need to hear and feel the praise of others to feel validated? In other words, do you lie to yourself about who you really are because you'd rather secure the admiration of others than truly be yourself? Self-deceit is a dangerous demon. Jealousy. Now, this is a big one, and it's not helped by the times that we live in. And I'm not just referring to Facebook and Instagram and the self-image platforms that are all around us. I mean, do you think of yourself as special? But no one seems to notice. Do you often think of yourself as a victim in various situations? Do you feel overlooked? If you feel that you're often frustrated and, and despairing, it may well be because you envy those around you, though that's not an easy thing to actually accept. It's not an easy suggestion to take on board because your natural tendency will be to feel like you're being victimized again. But jealousy, self-righteousness, are you a serious person? All the time? Really? Why is that? Are you serious because following rules makes you authentic and righteous? If so, what are you afraid of? Making mistakes? The unknown? Spontaneity? Ah, yes, because you need to be on guard all the time to protect yourself against any potential harm, right? Some of us just have to be right all the time because it's the safest way to live. Or finally, greed. And I don't mean, do you want more money? Of course you do. You're a student. <laughs> I mean, are you driven by a need to collect experiences, ideas, including theological ones, things, gadgets, relationships, stuff that will build up a sense of identity for you. We're gathering information. Please do. But is it because of your insatiable appetite for the new and exciting next thing? Now, I talk about these things, as I said, in, in, at some length, not, not to make you feel like, oh, there's probably more sin in my life than I care to think about right now, or anything like that. It's because these things are subtle. 
They're subtle. And I hope that you identify with some of that. The thing is, our, our creator God, who made you, who created you with purpose, knows exactly how you struggle with all these different things. He knows and he cares, and that's what we see in this passage. If you just flick to the next slide there, Nigel. Look at what follows in verses 6 to 8. When this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. And then we read, For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The demon-possessed man's words are interesting. What have you to do with me? I say that because this is a phrase that appears a lot in the Old Testament. In times of conflict and in times of judgment. What have you to do with me? It's an unusual phrase. But because it's an unusual phrase, it stands out here. It's in Samuel. It's in Kings. It's in Chronicles. What have you to do with me? But even more striking to me is the strange narrative sequence. Did you think that? Verses 7 and 8 seem to be flipped. Jesus speaks first, for he had said to him in verse 8, Jesus has already said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But Mark tells the story by putting the demoniac's words first in verse 7. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me? And then we read in verse 8, for he had said to him. Does that strike you as unusual? These are the kinds of details that we pay attention to with narrative critical reading. We ask, why has Mark reversed the conversation? It seems to me that Mark wants to put the emphasis on the response, our response. Jesus, what have you got to do with me and my private life? Why have you come to the other side? What are you doing here? What are you doing in this place that is so far from churchiness, so far from holiness? You're a long way from the clean, theologically sound places that I would expect you to inhabit and to stay in. And here we're introduced, Mark introduces us to Jesus, the disturber of the peace. Disturber of the status quo, at least, of our man-made or human-made peace. Jesus clearly unsettles this guy. What have you, why have you come to torment me, he says. Uh, that's on the next page, I think. But it's a very strong word, that word. If you look at the Greek, why have you come to torment me? It can be uh, translated to interrogate me. Why have you come to question me, even to torture me? Very strong language. And that's our impulse, isn't it? I think that's our impulse. When Jesus messes with our lives, intervenes, interferes, our impulse is to say, Jesus, why are you making things harder for me? Why are you sticking your nose where it doesn't belong? Why have you come to the other side? Just leave things be. But no, like it or not, God will intervene. God will interrupt you. God will interfere on the other side where you might think that God doesn't belong. 
He will interfere in your relationships, in your marriage, in those little details that you'd rather he not know about. There will come a little voice convicting you of the, I know this all too well, the things that you said wrong, the little snide remarks you didn't need to make when you have clashes with other people. And you can heed that voice or not, but God will interfere. He will interrupt. He will tap you on the shoulder when you're looking at porn on the internet. Why? Because he cares so deeply. He will intervene to prevent an eating disorder. He will. These are the messy things of life, guys, that people don't talk about. But this is where God wants to set foot. He wants to come to the other side, and he will. He will interfere, he will intervene and mess with your life because he loves you. Your creator God, the creator God, who tames the wind and the waves, is also a warrior God who fights for us, who makes his way across the waters to fight for us. In fact, speaking of that, did you notice our context? We've got Jesus coming across the water and stilling the waves around him. And just after that, we have this narrative about Jesus casting these demons into pigs and sending them to drown in the sea. Does that remind you of anything? This is the Exodus all over again. And if I had time, and I have cut this out of my sermon, there's a lot of language here that sounds very military. A lot of the languages can be understood in a militant context. The guy's name is Legion, for goodness sake. And here is Jesus, the creator God, the God of Israel, who comes to redeem his people and saving them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. And the next thing he does, he delivers them from their oppressors. And that's us. He has delivered us and he wants to save us from our oppressors, to intervene and to get rid of this oppressive status quo. Mark's underlining something here that uh, it's often an issue for Bible readers. Namely, how do I reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament? And Mark's answer is very simple, isn't it? They're the same God. And here, he's trying to make it abundantly clear. Jesus is the physical embodiment of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he's doing exactly the same stuff. One of my lecturers, when I was back at Bible college, wrote a book about all this called Jesus, the New Exodus in Mark. And he keeps talking about the first Exodus and the second Exodus. And he used that language to say, this is Yahweh coming in power again to do what he has always done, to deliver you, his people. When Yahweh interrupts what was normal for this man and for you can no longer be normal. It's not okay. What was acceptable and accepted by you is no longer acceptable. Why not? Because Jesus doesn't accept it. He doesn't accept what is unclean in our lives either. And I know we love to talk about how Jesus loves us and accepts us, don't we? Do I hear an amen? Amen. 
<laughs> I said amen to that one. But Jesus does not accept what is unclean. He doesn't. It cannot remain. It's not okay with him. You can't normalize what is unclean as a Christian. This concept goes back to the Old Testament too, of course. The law just goes to such detail about what is clean and what is unclean. And, you know, we get to the point where we're a bit tired of it. There's just so, even me studying the Old Testament. There's just so many laws about what's clean and unclean. We say, I get it. I get it. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that Jesus accepts or doesn't accept you on the basis of whether you are clean or unclean. We'd all be in some pretty serious trouble. But Jesus speaks against the unclean spirits in your life because he loves you and he wants to disrupt you. He wants to interfere. He wants it to be uncomfortable for you because he loves you. And so he wants to send these unclean spirits where they belong, in an unclean herd of pigs. The theme of clean versus unclean is a a strong motive throughout. Well, let's move beyond this and look at the response to this. Look at the response of the people to the man's transformation. They come and they see that he's sitting there clothed in his right mind, the man who'd had the legion, and they're afraid. They feel fear. And as we conclude and conclude this morning too, just note the two responses to Jesus' disruptive behavior in your life that you can choose between. Look at verse 17. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their neighborhood. You've come to the other side. We'd like you to go back where you came from. We don't want your disruptive presence here. And look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been possessed with demons begged him, same word, that he might stay with him, be with him. This is the choice that is before us, folks. Whatever it is that the Spirit is putting on your mind this morning, whatever it is that Jesus wants to disrupt in your life, you can beg Jesus to go back wherever he came from and leave you alone, but he won't for long. He will continue to interfere, to intervene and interrupt because he loves you, wants the best for you. Or you can be like the demoniac, And beg Jesus to stay with you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm conscious that the words I've shared this morning are quite sobering and serious. Uh, Not a lot of room for chuckling here. And I know this is serious because uh, it's been true in my life that you have consistently intervened and interfered, even when I would rather not hear your voice. So this morning we thank you for speaking. I just pray that you would give us courage to respond. Even now as we wait here, give us courage, Lord Jesus, to respond to you in obedience the obedience of faith. Amen.